Lesson one, basic hip. Welcome to the Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. This is episode 474 for February 15th, 2019. On today's show, harpist Brandy Younger. Please support the show by becoming a member for just five bucks a month at thejazzsession.com slash join. Brandy Younger's most recent record is called Wax and Wayne. Here's what it sounds like. is Brandy Younger. She's a harpist, and uh, I've just really totally fallen in love with her music and her approach to music making, and uh, was really excited to hopefully get Brandy on the show in the 11th season, and it happened. Brandy, I'm so excited that you're here, and thanks for taking the time to do it. Thank you so much for having me. So I mentioned to a friend the other day who uh, is not really a, a jazz head at all. Um, I said, uh, you know, I'm hoping that the next interview I'm going to do um, is with this harp player. And her response, and I swear to God this is true, is, yeah, I think everybody secretly wants to play harp. And I said, what are you talking about? She said, no, don't you think, like, every kid wants to learn to play the harp? I said, no, I don't at all. But maybe that's just me. That could be just a hole in my own knowledge or I went to the wrong school or something. So I guess I need to ask you just straight up, was was harp always on your radar as a thing that, people play like as an instrument that even existed let alone a thing that people could play for their life so the harp is like one of the oldest instruments to ever exist but it's it's one of the least accessible like when you most music departments in elementary schools and high schools they don't have harp programs um they don't have harp in their music programs so you can get a clarinet you can get a flute violin and you know all of the standard instruments but you can't get a harp so it is something that seems like oh i would love to do that you know everybody always says they want to play but it just seems like something that's not accessible um but yeah my parents actually introduced me to the instrument uh by way of a co-worker of my father I had started playing as a hobby and thought that my father said, oh, my daughter is musical. Because, you know, everyone says that about their child who <laughs> right. plays an instrument. <laughs> oh, my daughter's musical. Can we bring her over to your house? So my parents would bring me to her house. I was playing the flute at the time, like the smallest possible instrument. And we would play these little duets. Um, but that was really my introduction to the instrument. And the lady said, well, you know, I know of a teacher who works really well with kids. Um, so my parents were like, hmm, we don't know if we can afford this. But they asked me, is this something that I'd like to try? And I figured, why not, you know? Was the 
So uh, I, 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 my harp ignorance is really going to come to the fore here. I mean, obviously, I've I've seen a harp and I've heard a harp and I've seen people play a harp, but uh, to me, they're all enormous. And so the idea of you, like as a kid, going over—I mean, it must have. Seen, is it hard to play if you have like small hands of a child? That kind of thing. Is it? Was it like a tough instrument, <laughs> even to like sit down and make well, sound with? That's funny. Nowadays, they have all different kinds of harps, so they're different sizes. You generally don't start on a big pedal harp. Okay. You start on a smaller harp, and it doesn't have pedal, but has levers. Um, similar to an Irish harp. You know, those are the smaller ones. Sure. And you can change key by flipping the levers. Um, so if you look closely at harps, you either look down and you see pedals. If you don't see pedals, you look at the top of the string, and you'll probably see levers. So you start off on a smaller lever harp. And then once you exhaust, you know, you play for a few years or exhaust a certain amount of repertoire, you can upgrade. And it's also a big upgrading cost as well. So having access to the little harps is really um, important because the, the difference in price is massive. Um, so starting out on a pedal harp is a true, true commitment. Now, wait a minute. Now, you've also said something that has... I, I think is about to change my world here, which is the phrase change keys. I always just assumed that a harp was a completely chromatic instrument that just every key was a half or every string was a half step up from the or down from the one next to it and that you could play in all keys with the harp as it was. But it sounds like that might not be the case. Correct. It's diatonic. Wow. So I think of it best as the white keys of a piano. Okay. Um, and then you would move the pedals to change from key to key. So, like, we have seven pedals for each note of the scale. So if I put, and each pedal has three notches, flat, natural, sharp. So if I put my F pedal down, which makes it sharp, which makes it confusing to musicians because you're putting the pedal down to raise, to raise the, the pitch. Right. Um, but that pedal, that F pedal, changes all of the Fs on the harp to F sharp. So now the harp is in the key of G major. So you would start your scale on a G. Oh, and my God. And then you can put your C. I know, that's sort of what makes it a drag. You put your C pedal down, it becomes a C sharp, and then you're in the key of D major, and you would start your scale on <laughs> D. Just give me but a that's second. That's the best way to think about it. I have my list next to me of instruments I will never be able to learn how to play. Let me just write down harp. Okay, got it. No, give it a try. <laughs> so that's okay. So that's wild. So I, first of all, I have literally until this moment, or three, three or four minutes ago, did not realize that feet were involved in the playing of the harp at all. So it, it is instantly a mass. I thought it was pretty complicated anyway because it seemed very hard. If every if the strings were the way I thought they were, even that seemed quite difficult. But now it seems a million times more difficult than, than I thought it was. So, um, ha since you had been playing the flute up to that point, which is a pretty straightforward, you know, you put your fingers here and this note comes out and that's it. Um, the It seems like the harp must have been kind of a, a massive upscale in just in complexity and like having your limbs all work together and... It just seems way, way, way harder than what you had been doing. I know. Well, key-wise, it didn't make a difference at first. <laughs> at first. 
because you start on that lever harp. So it's tuned. It's in one key. Everything you learn is in like C major. Okay. So your teacher, your teacher tells you put the levers like this, and then you play in C major. So I gotcha. And then you might play something in G, and then you like move your F levers up. You know, so it's literally like baby steps. Um, so it gets confusing when you start to play music that has notes that aren't in the key, <laughs> which is almost everything. <laughs> right, exactly. So that's what that's yeah. what sort of makes it, it it a little confusing. But once you get there, you already got the hopefully you already have the hang of the strings and the keys. Man, oh man! So it's I, not as daunting as it seems from a distance. Yeah, my I already respected anybody who played the harp, but now I I think it's now it's reached ridiculous levels of respect because it just <laughs> that just sounds like like there are some instruments that when you see them you think yeah that I can totally get how someone decided this was a smart way to put a bunch of things together and make music and then when you hear someone <laughs> describe something like this or like a button accordion and you think like. Come on, that that's a prank, right. right? No one, that's just you're just having fun with me prank. now. Oh, that's awesome. Okay, well, I'm gonna have to I have to readjust my worldview now. But um, so so of course, well, I guess not of course, but I think I think it's fair to say that uh, the majority of harp literature uh, has not been in the jazz world, and so I I think I'm right in in saying that going um, to the harp school for you was kind of a a big deal about kind of crossing that bridge from uh, the more classical repertoire to improvised music. Is that, is that right? In my head? Yes. So like um, in college, you know, I, I studied purely classical music, but I was a fixture in all of, uh, in all of the jazz classes, <laughs> the uh, mainly rep building, Steve Davis, the trombonist would teach every Wednesday. I would, and it was a long class too. And I would go to rep building because rep building it was nine out of 10 times. It was a master class. Um, had a lot of guest artists come in, but between Steve Davis's class and like Matt Reeves ensemble, my head was everywhere. I was, my body was everywhere, but I was way too nervous to like actually bring the instrument in the class and play. <laughs> so you would just sit and watch. <laughs> I would just sit and watch. Yeah. Wow. That's dedication to an idea. And then would you go it's home like and you like you want to do something, but but you're you just like no no I'm not I'm not even gonna I'm not even gonna sit here and embarrass myself <laughs> yet. So then would would you go home and try the stuff that you'd been watching? Yeah yeah in my like personal time or sometimes I would grab a friend to sit with me because it's less embarrassing when it's one person than the whole class.
So how, then if you were watching rather than, uh, you know, doing for the most part, what? how did you kind of work up either the courage or how were you presented with an opportunity to begin to put it into practice? Uh, the discomfort of being thrown into the fire. Um, I can't remember which year I was in. I was either a junior or a senior or a super senior. I don't remember. <laughs> but I started to use an independent study to take lessons with Nat Reeves. Okay. It was like, I didn't want to like use the independent study to like write a paper. Yeah, I was, I was a music business major and a heart performance major, by the way. So I had to mix, um, I really had to mix up the performing classes with the music business classes. So some things, some independent studies usually are like internships. So because I had this management, uh, degree I was working on, I had some free, um, I had some free independent studies that should have been internships. So basically I just took advantage and, um, you know, so Nat would work with me on tunes, you know, and I would, I was very like, I'm like working on one tune at a time. You know, I couldn't grasp certain things. Like, I don't know. I actually, I never learned. What's the word? I never learned by um what's the word i'm looking for um i was never quote taught sure taught to play jazz per se so we would work on tunes together um but it wasn't until i got thrown into the fire and that was nat reeves linked me up with kenny garrett to work on um his album beyond the wall yeah and we worked together on um Tsunami Song. Actually, I still play that song. And I remember Tsunami Song and another song. And I remember particularly him asking me to improvise. And I was like, no, 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 I can't. I can't. And Desron was walking by the classroom. And then afterward, he yelled at me and he goes, when Kenny Garrett asks you to improvise, you don't say no. You figure something out. <laughs> It was really like being thrown into these really uncomfortable um, situations. That was the first time Kenny Garrett said to improvise something. Presumably you then had a second experience in which you actually tried it. And what was that like? You know, like still I, the discomfort never leaves and and you're in, you know, you're in a room. Some of them are students, but some of them are professionals and just feeling really, really stupid. I mean, I, I, there was another, thank God, there was another opportunity. You know, we were just fleshing out music. Um, and I, you know, I, I stepped out a little bit, but not a lot. <laughs> not a lot. Is I call it classical syndrome. It's when you're learned, you're taught to play exactly what you see exactly the way you're taught to phrase it and you don't deviate from what's on the page that was the the hardest thing for me even to this day and probably for the rest of my life the hardest thing for me is breaking out of that way of thinking regular listeners uh, to this program can already hear the next thing i'm going to say because in this in this situation this is what i always say which is that i believe that as children we all know how to improvise because we don't know how to do anything else and we don't think of it as improvising we just think of it as oh here's the thing i could make some cool sounds with and we do it and then we're essentially untaught that skill 
by our formal education. And then if we become improvising musicians uh, or anything else, improv actors or comics or whatever, we have to relearn something we already knew. We just we basically have to overcome our training as opposed to retrain ourselves. Um, like we have to find the kind of the more inner childlike and brave and uh, you know experimental parts of our personalities that we are in fact born with. I don't know if that rings true to you at all, but that that's my way of. No, that anyway. that absolutely makes perfect sense. Do you feel now like you have? come to some kind of uh, understanding? I mean, it seems like a ridiculous question to ask given what you do and the records you've put out and everything, but do you, fe- do you feel better now as an improvising musician? Like you have a, like it is your your true self or like you're able to kind of connect to who you really are while you're improvising? I'm glad you, I'm glad you said the words feel better because <laughs> <laughs> the answer is yes, I feel better, but I feel like I have like, oh, lifetime of ways to go but that's good right i mean i think that's what pushes you forward right yeah but i feel like i have like a lifetime and a half to go or two two lifetimes (laughs) because there are still things that i want to do or that are in my head and they don't come out (laughs) a lot so so that's that's it's frustrating it's frustrating Let's take a break from the music for a moment to tell you about becoming a member of the Jazz Session. You can do that at thejazzsession.com slash join. $5 a month gets you a bonus episode each month. You can hear the latest bonus episode, which I made freely available to the public, at thejazzsession.com. If we reach 100 subscribers, I'll put out three new shows a month. We're one-third of the way there right now. If we get to 200 subscribers, the show will be weekly. Again, that's thejazzsession.com slash join. Just five bucks a month gets you a membership. Thanks to our newest supporters, Julie, Jason, and Andrew. And now, back to the episode. Are there any particularities of the harp that make it easier or harder to improvise on? Are there things like that you can do more easily on a guitar or a bass or a saxophone or whatever than you can on a harp? Or is it, it once you've mastered the instrument, is it pretty much the same as anything else? No, absolutely. What you said earlier about the learning about the keys, that's really what makes harp a challenge because it's one thing to have, say, um, you know, a tune that's in one key, but then something like giant steps is not going to happen unless it's at um, 
a snail pace. Right. Quarter note equals one. Every every chord, you've got to change multiple pedals just to get to it. So there are huge hurdles uh, when it comes to non-chord tones or tones that aren't in key. Um, depending on what they are, how many they are. Um, so to confuse you possibly further, you might read a piece of music like for saxophone or whatever, and you see the melody written out instead of a key signature. I see this a lot now. People don't even write key signatures. They write the accidentals. Right. And they'll write sharp, 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 flat, flat, sharp, flat, sharp, flat for us. It's actually easier to see one um, and not like all flats, all sharps. It's right. easier for us to read. Um, that's like a biggie. And, and it's also harder for us to not see a key signature because if we don't see a key signature, we automatically think we're in the key of C with all of our pedals, you know, yeah, in their starting position. So it's, it's, harmonically it's difficult there is a harpist incredible harpist park stickney who i i think his brain is just like like otherworldly because he's literally able to play almost anything i don't know if there's anything that he can't do and he has can has the ability to change more than one pedal at a time he's got this great big foot and it's just like wow i wish i could be park stickney you know <laughs> because he's able to 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 jump around in ways that i'm like not, i'm just gonna skip that chord i'm just gonna skip that chord i'll, I'll be back on the next beat that's me wow it just all sounds it just sounds incredibly difficult and it makes me it, it just it, I, I encourage people uh well, first of all, anybody who hasn't already listened to you, I encourage them to just to do that. But now that I, I have listened to you a lot, and now that I understand how how much goes into making the music you make, it, uh, yeah, it really, it brings a new perspective to, to hearing all the sound that you actually produce. Um, I don't think, you can't really talk about this instrument in jazz, I guess, without talking about uh, the two people, in fact, probably the only two harpists I ever heard of before you, um, who are Dorothy Ashby and Alice Coltrane. And uh, I think I'm right in saying that uh, both have uh, kind of important roles in your own development or backstory. Um, can you just say a word about them, and particularly for folks who may not be familiar with their their work? Oh, yeah, so major. I think the, the way I learned about both um, separately, I learned about Alice Coltrane because my dad, my parents bought me a CD. You know that priceless jazz collection those oh, yeah. uh, compilations yep. <laughs> and blue nile was the first track on there and i was like oh my gosh i want to do this so i literally went into college like with my little disc man i want to play blue nile that's all i want to do i know i have to learn all this box but i want to play blue nile you know yeah so um but that was my introduction to her came through that cd that my dad got me my parents and then um I discovered Dorothy Ashby, not, I heard her before I saw her and I saw her on the cover of um, the harp column magazine. It's our harp magazine. And I saw this little, it was like a celebration of one of their anniversary issues and it had all these little squares. And I saw like a black person. I'm like, who's that? And I, you know, flipped through the pages and then I realized, Oh, that's, 
the harpist from If It's Magic, which I had only listened to a million times, <laughs> you know. So that was my introduction to both of them. And, um, you know, over the years, I remember, <laughs> I was, this is kind of embarrassing, but I was, um, I was in high school and I played trombone. We were in jazz band. And, um, and by the way, yeah, I got booted off the flute and swapped to a brass instrument of all things. Yeah, as you do. And, <laughs> but Clark Terry was performing and they did a little meet and greet afterward. And I run up to him and I say, Mr. Terry, it's a pleasure to meet you. Do you know how I can get in touch with Alice Coltrane? <laughs> and I know, I know, I know. That's awesome. And he was like, reach, I know, he said, reach out to the local union, the local 802 is what he said. But I just, I mean, years later, looking back, I'm like, I'm such an idiot. <laughs> oh, that's beautiful. Um, and um, so just, I really spent so much time researching both her and Dorothy Ashby. And at the time, Getting information on Dorothy Ashby was just so difficult because it wasn't out there. Um, so all of these years of study have been like opening up the treasure box for me. Um, so it's really, really amazing to have them as, um, I don't know what, I like this word Nate Chinon used, lodestar. Yeah. Lodestar, Yeah. And Alice Coltrane in particular, I mean, her music was so informed by her her spiritual practice. Did any of that resonate with you? I don't know anything about that aspect of your life at all. Well, in the beginning, remember, I was just listening, right? Sure. So I, I, <laughs> I didn't know the backstory. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, fair enough. But I mean, like, even her song titles and stuff, you know, she has a lot of album titles and things that are, you know, clearly about, you know, meditative practices and things like that. So teenage me, ah, Blue Nile's great. Taria Ramakrishna's great. And I wasn't really Googling because I don't know. If, I mean, we had the internet, but it wasn't like today. Sure. So, so I wasn't paying attention at first. You know, I'm just listening and I'm like, yeah, I really like this one. Oh, I love this. I want to play this. Oh, this one piano, but I'm going to play this on harp. It wasn't until, um, I would say, let's see, high school, college, you know, and also when I was in college, I was still trying to get a hold of her. I would um, reach out to Jack and McLean, and I was like, how do I, how do, oh, this is what happened. After years of trying to get a hold of her, someone said, why don't you ask Jack and McLean? And I was like, it never even occurred to me, like <laughs> stupid me, you know, because I'm sending all these emails, and I still had AOL. Remember AOL? Oh, yeah. And people actually, you know. And it, it wasn't until I started to research her that I really started to learn, learn more about the spiritual aspect <clears throat> of her music and her life, learned about the song titles, learned about the, you know, the journey. And it, I mean, and that, again, this treasure box is never empty to this day. I mean, even after researching and studying all these years, the treasure box is still full. Um, but I, did you read uh, Monument Eternal by Franya Berkman? I did. Um, I was really happy that that book happened because yeah. there weren't any like biographical pieces on Alice Coltrane. So I think it was really important for that to exist and, and, and talk about her, Alice's 
Baptist upbringing, and I'm definitely Baptist. Grew up playing the same music, same kind of church. Um, but the most exciting part for me is, you know, over the years learning how Alice's music would just combine these elements of her gospel upbringing, her jazz training, and her spiritual, and then her then spiritual path. You know, you've got these elements of of Indian classical music and jazz and gospel, and she's really just created this entire genre all her own. Um, so that, I mean, it, it speaks volumes. Yeah, she was a real model for the idea of synthesis, or maybe even more than synthesis, also like a borderless approach to thought. Just, you know, if you can, yeah. if you can take something from it, take something from it and, and keep yeah. going. So I'd like to talk about your own uh, recordings, um, and I guess maybe one question is to ask: How did you how did you get to the point where you felt you were ready uh, to put something down on a record? I know the first one, Prelude, you know, I think you recorded it as a as a demo, and it ended up being released. But how did you get to that point where you were like, okay, I I now I've got some stuff I want to say and and get it down for posterity? Well, quick quick story. I mean, the short version is just. I recorded that as a demo, and and I was like to a couple of people, can you just take a listen to this? You know, I had written that song with uh, my good friend Nye, who's a singer, and playing some standards, and I had no intention of releasing that, and I, I texted it to uh, Casey Benjamin. I was like, check it out. And then he goes, Brandy, don't release demos, just make records. And I was like, really? I should put it out? And he's like, yeah, why not? So literally, Casey told me, don't make demos, just make records. I like it. And... And I was like, okay, I guess can't hurt. Worst thing that happens, I just pull it back. You know, I, <laughs> I, I didn't, you know. So um, also just this whole journey of coming from playing what I see on paper versus not, you know, I was like, this is really going to be like a lifetime of figuring this out. Do I wait till I'm 80 or try to do something now? And, and one of the things that Robbie Coltrane would tell me is, he goes, you know, you record these things. You're, just, you're documenting where you are at the time. And thinking about it that way, 
helped me to come to terms with, okay, this isn't going to be perfect. Actually, this might, this might really blow a bit here or there, or this is not great, but this is good, you know? So it, it kind of made me just feel a little bit better about where I was and where I am versus hopefully, <laughs> hopefully where I'll end up. And so as you, uh, when Wax and Wayne came out, first of all, which I think is a brilliant recording and I, I really love and listen to a lot, um, it it felt, you're welcome, it feels very, like very realized, like kind of, it feels like a, a person who's pretty aware of where they're at in that moment. Um, like it has something to say and a person who's not afraid to say it. And so I guess, can you, can you, talk, can you talk about that record um, and how it came to be? So I, this is, this is the timeline of things. So Prelude happened. I forgot what year that was. I think 2011. And then, uh, was it 11? I think so. That's off my brain, but anyway, sometime around then. It's off my brain too. Yeah. Um, I'm going to look it up. Okay. So Prelude happened, and then I decided I wanted to record a full-length album. And I did. I went to Bunker and to Tedesco Studios, and I recorded this album. And then... I don't remember exactly what order this happened. I don't know if, if Megan Stabile had come to us about Supreme Sonacy at this time or what, but I got distracted. So I recorded that album. It was done. Um, I, I wanted to release it. Something happened with the timeline. I don't know. Then Supreme Sonacy came up. We recorded Supreme Sonacy. Casey produced that session. I liked the way it came out. And Ann Drummond, the flutist, she liked the way it came out. She's the one that said, Brandy, why don't we do a whole record of this? And I was like, are you serious? And she was like, yeah. So I was like, okay. So because the concept was already there, I so for Supreme Sonacy, I wrote a song. It's called Dorothy Jean. It's, it's like my ode to Dorothy or my tribute to Dorothy. And we really loved the way Casey was able to like deconstruct and reconstruct what I wrote. So we're like, okay, so let's do this. I have some original that I'm working on and these Dorothy Ashby tunes. Let's go ahead and record a record. So we sat down and we recorded that record. And the record that I had recorded previously, it literally just got like the boot. (laughs) I plan to release it. I do plan to release it this spring. I've been, I mean, it's old now, but I don't want to waste it. Yeah. (laughs) I don't want to waste it. So I do plan to release it. But my point is, is that the concept was so clear because we have that track that we did for Supreme Sonacy almost as a model. Sure. We knew how Casey worked with us to do that track. So we knew, yeah, I mean, I didn't know exactly how things were going to, you know, come out completely, but a lot of that was really born in the studio. I mean, it was really him and, and Desron and Dana, the whole rhythm section is what, in my opinion, makes that record, the rhythm section. Yeah, I don't, I don't disagree. I think it's, it's pretty incredible sounding and, and yeah, it just, it just gives this kind of solidly rooted in earth feel to the record that is so important, I think, to its success. I agree. 
when you play classical repertoire, having played so much improvised music, is is it ever difficult to just play what's on the page? Um, it's not difficult. Yes, yes, it is difficult. I... <laughs> <laughs> okay, <laughs> and that's Brandy Younger, folks. Thanks. Tune in next week. <laughs> so. I have no qualms about, like, I mean, I can just read what's there, but then if I need to learn it, it takes me forever to learn a piece of classical music. So the process I go through is very different. Um, Once I catch on and I'm like, oh, it would be, I can just sort of see this is what this chord is. So then I might grab it like in the wrong inversion because I'm thinking of the chord and not necessarily what I see on the paper. Sure. Sometimes. So sometimes they get a little mixed up. Um, But I think actually it helps me now because I can hear, instead of approaching something in a bit-by-bit approach, which I used to take, I can kind of see and hear it more as the big picture. So I think it's it's really helped me out in many ways. But yeah, it's ruined me in other ways because sometimes I'll say, oh, that's just that chord. I'm just going to hit a C octave in the bottom, you know. in certain things. I'm getting ready to do um, um, Debussy dances um, with a, a symphony in Long Island. So, you know, that definitely has to be note for note. So I'm in that slow practice approach of playing exactly what's on the paper. What are the performance experiences like? Are they different at all between classical performances and improvised performances? Uh Absolutely. Tell me how. Absolutely. So, <clears throat> let me give you an example. I just played a concert um, in Alabama at the University of Alabama, and afterward, um, a lot of the audience members came backstage, and there was a woman there, and she said, I'm sorry if we're a different kind of audience, but we loved it. I didn't say anything, but audience energy It's huge. So when you have absolute silence, it makes me more nervous. It's like, do you hate it? I know it's just a respect thing, but it it, it makes me more nervous as opposed to other settings and other genres where people are are very responsive to what they see and what they hear. Um, You really can feed off of that. I can feed off of that energy. Um, when there's absolute silence, there's uncertainty on my part, which is probably my fault because I should kind of be like stuck in myself, but I'm not. I'm a very, I'm, I'm very talkative. I'm very interactive. That's the word. Very interactive. So that other side is, is important to me. I, I want to hear a pin. I want to hear, I don't want to hear noise, but I, I want to hear, I want there to be an element of, I want things to be casual. How's that? I was thinking also about, like, we're in, along the lines of this same question, like, maybe, like, the difference between a, a, an actor and a stand-up comic or something, where one, one person is, uh, is cer- both people are performing. One person is performing lines someone else has written, and the other is essentially 
getting a, the crowd to react completely through things they thought of themselves. Um, obviously, skill required in both. And I wondered if there's any different feeling for you, like a feeling of kind of ownership or connection when you're interpreting someone else's music versus when you're performing your own. Well, I'm more confident performing my own because I have, if I mess it up, <laughs> that's okay <laughs> yeah fair but enough you're right there is this ownership well this is this is mine i made it you know so i mean i whether or not you like it that's cool and i can also feel a little less um nervous about making mistakes if folks are listening to this uh, right now or around the time it's released, it's February 15th or so, 2019. And so there are some chances to see you live coming up. Can you uh, tell us about that? Yeah. So um, I'll actually be doing a residency at Michigan State University and doing a concert there with the faculty on the 21st of this month. And then the 22nd through 24th, I'll be at the Jazz Showcase with Makai and the Cravens Group. And that'll be fun. And then March 9th, I'll be playing with the North Shore Symphony Orchestra. Um, and that'll be at Adelphi University in Garden City, Long Island. So I encourage folks to get out there. You can go to uh, brandyyounger.com and uh, click on the Shows tab and uh, all of the shows and ticket information and everything is right there. And then you mentioned just a few minutes ago in the interview that uh, this album that had you know kind of been in the archive, so to speak, is going to come out. Um, do you have a, a date for that? Plans to, to perform around it? Anything like that? Yeah, so I, I do plan to release this archive record um, in May and should be playing at the Blue Note as release concert May 21st and 22nd. Oh, that's awesome. Can I tell you a question that actually I wanted to ask you earlier and I edited it out uh, for reasons that will become obvious? And I'm going to tell you what it was because you just said the Black History Month thing. Um, and mm -hmm. if it uh, if you hate this question or it sounds like a question that a white middle aged dude would ask, um, then you can tell me and I won't ask you it. But what I wanted to ask was that this seems like a real renaissance time for unapologetically black music and musicians, people who are really kind of rooting themselves in everything that being black in America means right now, not just in the jazz world, but, but taking in everything. And if this feels to me like a time when that is at one of its heights, like as I look around now at the, all of this amazing music being made by young black musicians, it just, it feels to me like ev everything is on the table right now. And the music is as exciting as it's ever been. Um, and I just think that's, I think that's amazing and beautiful. And I wonder if it feels that way to you at all. Well, yeah, I mean, I feel like it has always been that way, but maybe some more people are just taking note of it, right? Sure. I mean, I mean, there, I don't know if there's been a period of not great black music in the past, and well, definitely my lifetime, but, you know, over the past... I don't know how many decades. So I, I think it's one of those things where it's like, okay, so you just noticed. Doesn't mean it hasn't been happening. You know what I mean? Yeah. I guess the difference for and, me, like, so I'm 45, and I mean, when I, you know, when I was like in high school or whatever, it was like the Marsalis era, and whatever opinion anybody has on that era, and I have a strong one, but it doesn't matter what it is. Whatever opinion you have on it, it was definitely an era where a 
very particular kinds of improvised music were were celebrated and brought to the fore and every young lion quote unquote was getting a record contract and that kind of thing and now the era in which i'm living seems to be like the era of you know people like you and micaiah and glasper and um these people who are drawing painting with a what to me is a much broader canvas and drawing from many more styles of music now i know at the same time as Wynton marsalis was doing his thing that other people were doing other kinds of things i just feel like the music that is broader and and has a wider viewpoint is more ascendant now and that to me is what seems like the difference and seems like a positive to me but again that could be just my perspective no, absolutely. But do you think that maybe just the industry model changing maybe has something to do with that as well? Being that I can put anything out that I want. Makai can sure. put anything out that he wants. So we don't have to rely on um, on labels or on the industry saying, you know, we'll, we'll put this out for you. So I think maybe a little of everything, you know? Yeah, no, that's very fair. Yeah, and I also think there's a way um, in which the marketability of hip-hop um, you know, to white audiences is, you know, has made a difference in that too. Like as it, as it transcended to, to being like on shampoo commercials, the fact that, that, right. you know, <laughs> now it's okay. I right. Was, I'm about to say that you can't even hear a commercial on TV that doesn't have a hip hop reference in it. Right. <laughs> it's, it's, it's actually mind blowing the things that I'm, and they're said so just like matter of factly. Yeah. Like, did they just say that? Right. You know, on the channel. <laughs> right, exactly. Exactly. I saw a Charmin toilet paper commercial with an animated bear that had a, a booty reference in it. And I'm just like, what yes, am I watching cartoons, right now? Cartoons, twerking. I mean, right. it's just like... <laughs> definitely. Yeah. I mean, every, you know, every, there's that whole culture has become part of today's culture yeah it's it's transcended colors you know yeah, Cult- yeah it's transcended one culture you know but i was i was laughing when you asked because um i was desron has a new record out and which is amazing by the way I people was, uh, you all need to listen to it oh yeah, yeah i love it but before it came out i was sending it to rashawn carter and he said he might want to change some of those super black titles <laughs> that question that's the first thing i thought about it's very funny that's awesome uh, i like it well that's a that's a perfect place to uh to draw this to a close um my guest has been harpist uh composer brandy younger it's been such a pleasure to talk to you uh it was definitely for me the thing i was looking most forward to making work in the 11th season and i'm really glad that you were able to uh to come on so thanks so much for being here brandy thank you so much for having me so much fun that's the show thanks to the respect sextet for the music you'll find them at respectsextet.com dave rabel designed the logo the show is on social media facebook.com slash the jazz session instagram at the jazz session and twitter at jazz sesh j-a-z-z-s-e-s-h you can find me on twitter and instagram at jason d crane Please do rate and review the show in Apple Podcasts or wherever you download this show. It really does help. Become a member for just five bucks a month at thejazzsession.com slash join. 
You'll hear new episodes on the 1st and the 15th coming up on March 1st, 2019 at saxophonist Chris Green. Come back next time for another conversation about jazz on the Jazz Session. Bye. Bye.